This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish, and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to After the Buzzer. I'm Bob Wallace, Chair of the Sports Law Practice at Thompson Coburn in St. Louis. We specialize in representing entities with sports interests whether it's acquisitions, facilities, finance, representation on real estate deals, contract negotiations. We have lawyers that have a lot of experience in those areas. I started doing these podcasts because I believe there are plenty of great topics in sports law and business. And even more importantly, there are a lot of great people involved in professional and amateur sports working in all these areas. I hope you have enjoyed some of our conversations. Today we have a really interesting guest, a St. Louis native who went to Missouri and came back home to lead what was described as St. Louis's first homegrown football franchise. That sports executive is Kurt Hunzecker. Kurt is a senior sales and marketing strategist, creative leader, with 20 years of executive management and operational experience, and has worked on or with agencies, brand management, media, and team entities. In other words, Kurt has worked on all sides of the sports business. In his most recent role, Kurt was a team president of the XFL St. Louis Battlehawks, where he led all fan engagement and team business operations, including talent acquisition, ticket sales, corporate partnerships, marketing, game day, communications, media, and community outreach. Prior to that, starting in 2015, Kurt served as a vice president marketing strategy and research for minor league baseball, where he built, enacted, and measured the go-to-market corporate partnerships and fan engagement strategies for the MILBS, National Commercial Sales and Marketing Enterprises, representing all 160 minor league communities. Prior to his MILB, he spent five years at Rawlings Sporting Goods as a senior director of brand marketing, where he led Rawlings' global brand marketing, media buying, and partnership activation efforts. Kurt has worked on the sports marketing agency side and authored Sports Advertising Process, an informative interactive guidebook for sports executives looking to enhance and maximize their internal and external marketing communications. Kurt received his Bachelor of Journalism from the University of Missouri Journalism School. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you. So were you excited this weekend when Missouri upset LSU? I was excited and terrified looking through my fingers as I couldn't bear to watch the first and goal from the one in the same end zone that has caused so much heartburn uh, over my entire life. But the fact is that, that the end zone where they had the five top, downs? Uh, they've had, that's the end zone of everything. Flea flicker <laughs> uh, or the, the, the flea kicker, you know, everything just seems to happen in that end zone. So, no, that was that was fun to watch. Good. Well, congratulations. Um, it was a big v- victory for a new coach, Drinkowitz, and hopefully the start of something good. We could use some good football uh, at the college ranks here in, in the Missouri area. Let's talk about the XFL and uh, your latest venture and the success story in St. Louis. And I was just saying to you, I think uh, St. Louis and, and the Battlehawks had as successful a launch as any team uh, in the XFL. Uh, how did you go about doing that? I think you got a late start, by the way. I did. I, I was hired on July 1st of 2019. And from my first day until our first game at Dallas in early February, I had seven months in a week. So it was a lot of parallel paths that really got us ready for, for our inaugural season. And on one hand, I'm building the long-term vision for the franchise, building the brand uh, and those foundational elements that any organization needs to to get up and running. And then I also had to make sure that we had cold beer and, you know, footballs in uniforms uh, come February. So a lot of that long-term strategy was going to play into the 2021 season. Uh, I, I would estimate that we probably enacted about 20% of what we ultimately were going to do as part of our business strategy, just because we simply didn't have a full off season. We didn't have the time to get everything ready 
given we had to spend a lot of time building the front office, building the, the actual team, and then just making sure that you know, the league gets off the ground in year one. So what was like the very, when you walked in, uh, and I guess your office was out at the old uh, Rams Park, which I, I don't know what it's called these days, Lou Fuse uh, thing. What was the very first thing you, you thought you needed to do? Well, the, the first office was actually in the basement of my friend's house in Moscow Mills, Missouri, uh, <laughs> July 1st. We didn't move into Luffy's Athletic Training Center until late October, early November. Uh, so we, we were kind of nomadic for a little bit there as we were building up the staff. I mean, obviously, in, in, in July and August, uh, it was just me up until midpoint of August. That's when the first handful of hires started. So it was me and my laptop and sitting in my friend's basement and just trying to understand what is the what is that initial building block? What's the foundation of this team? And I knew this going in. I had this gut feeling that we really wanted to separate ourselves from the previous pro football teams in St. Louis. We did not want to hark on the negativity of the previous team's exit from the community. So how do you really strive to be very positive and build a pro football team from scratch in, in a town that had two heartbreaks uh, with the Cardinals and the Rams? And to me, the quickest way to do that was to build our brand on the fact that we were the first homegrown pro football team in St. Louis. And that really allowed all of us that went out to community, whether it was me, whether it was the front office, Coach Hayes, the players, it allowed us to be immediately positive and always about the present and future. We were completely cognizant of what happened in the past, but building a brand off the negativity is just not sustainable. And so we set out to to build the story of, of St. Louis' first homegrown pro football team, and we absolutely needed the community's help to doing that. And that grassroots philosophy was really the the springboard for us to get out into the community and, and build this team. So when you started doing that, uh, your first hire uh, to help you do that was who? Was what? What area? So and this is where you know the single owner entity that the XFL employs really bears fruit. So the talent acquisition team was based in Stanford, Connecticut, but they allowed all the team presidents to really build their teams as they as they saw fit. And so what I wanted to do is I absolutely wanted a uh, community-centric ticket sales and experience team. And we had partnered with Elevate Sports Ventures to to be the kind of the ticketing arm, but all the great executives that are part of the Battle Hawks. I always looked at them as Battle Hawks. They were part of our team. And they were going out in the community just as much as the quote unquote marketing team was. So that was, you know, one A and then one B was marketing and community and bringing those together. So Ed Kaczynski was my head of ticket sales and strategy and Mark Taylor, who used to work at the St. Louis Cardinals, was my head of marketing and community. And really everything started with those two points. You had to bring people into the venue. Uh, and so Ed was not just the executioner of the ticket sales uh, experience, but he and Mark worked hand in hand in going out to community, creating these community events to really not just boost awareness, but create those group sales and, and, and big opportunities for, you know, neighborhoods, churches, youth organizations to come to the games. So what was your elevator pitch or, or their elevator pitch to the people that you were trying to sell tickets to? Uh, return a foot again you, you just mentioned that you didn't want to sell uh, or, or harp on the negativity of the two franchises uh, but you are trying to I guess go to those people that miss football here so what was your your elevator pitch to, to, to people that you were reaching out to no you're exactly right and the elevator pitch was the same to anybody it was the same to Civic progress, it was the same to prospective ticket buyers, it was the same to Anheuser Busch and Centene and Ameren and our corporate and our commercial partners that we 
our founding partners that we had. And it was, we have this vision of, of building St. Louis's first homegrown pro football team. And we need your help. Simply put, we needed, we needed the community stop. There is no way that the 20 plus of us that worked in the front office, if you take the aggregate of the coaching staff and the players, we could not possibly build this brand and this team by ourselves in that short period of time. And, and so we were very candid when we went out to high school football games, to the you know, hot air balloon festival in Chesterfield, to all these different events. And every day we had at least one from August 21st of 2019 to March 12th, when we suspend the season 2020. Say for Christmas Day and New Year's Day, we were out in the community every single day. And we, and we simply listened and asked the St. Louis community to build this team with us. And that vision and that approach might have taken some people back um, just because we were very adamant saying, we don't have all the answers. And we really do want and need your help. And the embrace and, and just the the collaboration and the positivity that whoever we talked to uh, returned to us. That was the fun part. I mean, the build of this team was probably the most fun part and the fruit and the, the, what, what we, everybody saw the results of that with two sellout crowds with the only two home games that we were able to play. You touched on one of the questions I was going to ask one is that people uh, were enthusiastic uh, about that, about what you were trying to to, to sell them, uh, you know, on, on two levels. One is the the fan base, you know, just the, you know, Joe Sixpack who's, who loves football and wants to go to the game, and then the corporate community. Uh, what did they tell you that they wanted out of the Black Battle Hawks? The corporate community. Uh, either one, corporate and then fans. What were they looking well, for? What was <laughs> what was the return they were looking for? Uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities. The fans were very keyed in on fun. Uh, and my background, having just come from minor league baseball, I mean, that's that's the minor league baseball brand. It's fun. And our tagline was, it's fun to be a fan. And so there was a very clear synergistic alignment between what I had been doing for the previous almost five years at minor league baseball to what I wanted to do at the Battlehawks. And in an aggregate, what the XFL was wanting to do and being a a fan-focused, community-centric league. So that was easy because we were in complete lockstep. Because we, we we had aimed, I had aimed to build a team that fun was one of our root personality traits. On the on the commercial partnership side, fun definitely was a part of it. And given the fact that <clears throat> it was such an open book, it, it was it was a blank canvas that we were able to do things with brands that. Uh, you know, I think we we could get away with a little bit more because the creativity, there wasn't a, we've always done it this way or we've never done it that way. When you're building something completely new, which is like catnip to me, it was the same way, like Amarin and, and Renewal by Anderson and, and AB assigning or a selecting Bud Select to be the, the beer uh, aligned with the Battle Hawks. Like there was so much creativity because we literally went into our partnership meetings with, hey, what do you guys want to do? And it wasn't like, oh, here's the menu board. With Renewal by Anderson, we, we actually physically created a glass box of emotion that became one of the lighthouses in the concourse area during our games. Our fans want to take pictures with it, and it got them talking about their product in ways that you can't do with their typical, quote unquote, advertisement or, or marketing activation. And that was, again, the fun. I mean, building everything when there is no one telling you that what you're doing is wrong. It may not be right, but it's certainly not wrong either. Um, I think our, our, our fans, as well as our, our corporate and civic partners, had a lot of fun in, in building that together. Did you have any restrictions from the league headquarters on their vision of what was fun and wh or what you could do uh, from what you know, was there any Big Brother looking down on you? I wouldn't call it Big Brother looking down. I think we were we greatly benefited from the fact that the XFL had its mantra, what it was trying to do, what it was the reimagining of football, and then with the the tag, the official tagline for the love of football, that gave us a pretty enormous sandbox to play in. And what 
Jeffrey Pollack, uh, the XFL COO and, and president, who I laddered up into on the business side, he really wanted that story told in eight distinctly unique ways in each of the eight communities. You know, on the macro level, the XFL meant this. So if you're watching on TV in any of the non-eight XFL markets, you saw that access to players and coaches, the behind the scenes that we wanted to provide as a league. But then at the local market, they, I knew in what works in St. Louis may not work entirely in Seattle or Los Angeles or New York and vice versa. But there was always cross collaboration between the 18 presidents and really everybody laddered up into a committee in, in Stanford with the league office. So um, they, they promoted and demanded, and we welcomed with open arms, the collaboration between not just the league, but the other markets. And in St. Louis, we were the guinea pig for a lot of the grassroots uh, elements that I started off with, with the high school football, with some of the, the happy hour type events that when we, some of the other markets replicated, put their own unique spin on it that makes sense in their communities. But they started to see the same results and vice versa. We picked up a lot from what other markets were doing and were able to integrate that into our business plan. So it certainly was not big brother. It was we took advantage and we leveraged the big benefits of having a single ownership structure where really all eight franchises or, or teams were all rowing in the same direction at all times. So now you mentioned that uh, what may play in St. Louis, uh, may not play in L.A. or New York. And the Battle Hawks in St. Louis were one of the few teams that didn't have an NFL franchise in it, uh, a city that didn't have an NFL franchise, but was one that had lost uh, two. And you, you mentioned you didn't, of course, want to focus on the negativity. Uh, but talk about St. Louis as a football market and, and what your feelings about that were. Well, <clears throat> we were the only XFL market that did not have an NFL team. And so when we were in the, this time last year, uh, my counterparts in the other seven markets were shadowing their NFL equivalents uh, because some of them played in the same venues. Um, others that played in MLS facilities were shadowing their counterparts. So when their game day came up, they had a frame of reference. And obviously we did not ha have that in St. Louis. So we were always a bit of an outlier in that regards, but that also allowed us a longer runway to do more, I think. So when we went out in community, starting with that first football Friday last August, it was, we had the entire uh, high school football season ahead of us that we could activate. And we did it in the four quadrants of St. Louis because the closest even collegiate team was Mizzou an hour and a half away. So that allowed us to really come in and, and I'm not going to say by default be the steward of football in the community, but it gave us that opportunity to assume that mantle, but we had to earn it. And that's really where we wanted to go out in grassroots uh, events and, and go out and be in the community and, and engage with would-be fans and consumers. Because while it's really easy to say you're St. Louis born and raised, we wanted to to walk the walk as well. and that's why we had such a committed schedule of everybody being out in the community on a daily basis. You know, outside of our team meetings on Monday mornings, I told everybody, if we are all in the office at the exact same time at any other point this week, we are doing something terribly, terribly wrong. And because we were losing an opportunity to talk to Kiwanis clubs or high school um, like booster clubs or elementary schools or chambers of commerce or local companies because we wanted we wanted to tell our story we wanted to do that elevator pitch of our vision for this team and really we we needed their help and getting out in the community was really the core of what the battle hawks did from day one that some of the other markets adopted once their nfl seasons ended they had now quote unquote, the undivided attention, football attention in their communities to do so. And they started taking advantage of that just the same way that we did. We just had more months. Imagine how more difficult your strategy would have been if we were involved in the pandemic like we are now. 
your high school football strategy, and some of that would have been so much more difficult uh, than it, <laughs> you're than exact, it was. You're exactly right. So you you also talk. I mean, your very first game here, uh, you know, was was a sellout. It was great. You had the whole, you know, lower bowl filled, and there was a, my sense of it was part of it was a genuine middle finger to the Rams and saying we are a football town, Stan Kroenke. We don't care what you say as you left. Uh, how did you did you guys sort of tap into that a little bit? Obviously, and without really audibleizing it, so to speak, we knew that there was that pent-up angst, but we also knew that there was pent-up demand. Um, what we wanted to do was, as quickly as possible, shift that negative sentiment into have the nation understand what a lot of us already knew, that St. Louis is a phenomenal football town. And I, I saw terms like, oh, the hidden gem of pro football. And that, so, okay, let's unhide this gem. Let, let's get out. And, and, and I think very quickly, yes, you had the chance to start the game. But as, you know, that, that first home game went on, and then you're starting to see more people just get on board with the caca train and just really thought, oh, this is, this is actually a fun team. I think that transition from let's stick it, we're going to support this team as uh, a way to get back, transition to we're supporting this team because it's fun, and, man, they do adopt a lot of St. Louis things into the game day experience, into what they do during the week. I mean, Coach Hayes and I were completely aligned from day one on being – giving back to the community uh, all the time. And we never, like on the days off that the players had, typically a Tuesday, we were out in the community doing something with the players giving back, whether working with um, uh, the food bank or working with our partners at SSM Health, Carnal Glennon Hospital. We were always, the players were just quick to raise their hand to do whatever we kind of asked uh, as it related to, hey, let's let's support the community that's supporting us, and it's that that reciprocal embrace that I think we caught some people off guard with that because it's not something that the previous football team did or was so passionate about, and so that helped transition from boo, we hate the other team because they left us to this is what we want. This is what a homegrown team should do. Let's embrace this and let's have some fun with this. So you talk about the hidden gem of St. Louis uh, and why a football market. And, you know, again, as you know, uh, we've lost two football teams. And uh, mm -hmm. even though when the Cardinals left, they did not say this was a bad football market. Uh, the Rams leaving saying that this was a dying football market. In fact, they basically argued that it was a dying uh, region, uh, you know, losing businesses and all that. How do you address that? Your, what's your what's your take? I, on I, that? I, well, I, I think we lost the Cardinals and the Rams in a real estate deal. It's easy to point the finger, and obviously, recent history being how the Rams exited what they said. And to your point about not just the the football fandom in St. Louis, but the region in general, it, it was really a, a, a real estate play. Um, when given something to cheer about, especially in football, which there hasn't been a ton, uh, you know, the, the football Cardinals weren't regular contenders uh, year over year. Obviously, the greatest show on turf showed the country and the world what a raucous home field advantage really is. But then you had all those years of losing and never making the playoffs. And that, I mean, obviously that chips away at a fan base, especially a professional top level fan base. And we knew because we weren't, the XFL was not at the highest level, similar to minor league baseball is still professional baseball, but it's not the highest level. And with player transactions almost guaranteed year over year, 
you can't build your brand on a quarterback or a quartet of players, but you can build your brand on what the actual team stands for. What's its purpose outside of just providing entertainment for five games, 41 games, 80 plus games uh, over the course of the year. And that was the difference. Um, you know, we weren't building just five games for fans to come to. We were building something that they, that was eventually as part of our long-term strategy or business plan was going to be a 365 day brand. Uh, you know, as soon as the season was going to end uh, in, in April, we were going to launch an adult foot, flag football league at Luffy's Athletic Training Center. Teams would have been branded the Battle Hawks. Um, we were, I was already working with a number of youth football organizations, both flag and tackle, and trying to brand as many of them as Battle Hawks. And then one thing that developed that we had not anticipated, uh, but based on the the data we had of our actual game attendees is we were drawing a very strong regional crowd. Fans from not just Missouri and Illinois, but Iowa, Indiana, going as far west as Nebraska. Actually, we had a couple people from Montana come in for both games. It, that was telling us that the story of why the XFL was created to bring more football to fans who love football, who cry in their pillow when the Super Bowl ends because there's no more live football. There's a massive market for this. And St. Louis just kind of got screwed twice. You know, two teams left, not really because the fans were terrible. It's just they moved on to a different real estate deal. And so how can we tap in? How can we overcome that angst? And believe me, I heard it numerous times of, I just can't fall in love again. I don't want to get, I don't want my heart broken. Again, I'm like, I totally understand. So just come out on one date <laughs> and help us build this brand. Even if you can't, even if you don't want to come to games, follow along on social media. We're coming to your, your high school games. We're coming to your youth events. Tell us what you would like, and then maybe it might entice you to come out to a game at some point this season or next year or the year after. So as you, as you, you talked about the brand a lot and brand. So if you had to, you know, the Cardinals had a great tagline, the, the baseball Cardinals, baseball the way it ought to be. Uh, and that really caught on in the mid, you know, I guess in the mid-90s. Uh, do you have a, a tagline that you would say about the ex, about the Battlehawks? What would you, your tagline be that sort of encapsulates, encapsulates what you believe the Battlehawks stood for? Well, this is an excellent question. I think this is where, again, we, while we didn't have a whole lot of time, we were given a very good running head start by the XFL league office. When they came out and said, we are reimagining football, uh, Oliver Luck, Jeffrey Pollock, Vince McMahon, they said that over and over and over again. So even those, those simple words, there's a lot to play with there. And so we reimagined. I took that to heart when I was interviewing for the job. So how can I reimagine football in St. Louis? And that led to the, well, this is the first homegrown team. So we knew that, and having worked in minor league baseball during my you know, four-plus seasons, I had visited 134 of the 160 teams. So I have seen a ton of Americana. And in no place, and I'm 100% biased having been born and raised in St. Louis, but in no place is the value of being born and raised in a certain city or community the same as it is in St. Louis. It's just the value is off the charts. And you went to what high school? Ah, this is where I fail. Well, I'll get to that in a second. So <laughs> we, we, we knew that the Cardinals and Rams weren't from here. And having that starting point of we've, we are actually birthed in St. Louis. This team is St. Louis through and through. But this is how we're going to reimagine the game. How would you want to reimagine it, potential Battlehawks fan, potential Battlehawks corporate partner, potential, potential Battlehawks beer vendor, whatever. Having those conversations, really, that was, that was our brand. And that allowed us to not just make it a one-way, here's a catchy tagline, but really make it a device to create two-way conversations with fans. And that's what, in today's day and age, it absolutely sports brands absolutely have to be listeners. They can't just 
push something out and expect it to to click, they have to be able to respond, whether it's social media or any kind of typical customer service. Um, because without it, you're going to get lapped by brands and companies and teams that you know definitely do listen to their fans. So how hard is it? Well, first of all, what high school did you go to? So I went to high school in Tampa, Florida. Uh, Bloomington High School. <laughs> my parents, my uh, my dad took a job. Uh, in, I moved in sixth grade, so I went to St. Clement of Rome uh, in in Pair. Kindergarten through a couple weeks in sixth grade, and then my family moved to Tampa. And it's funny because even though I was 11, 12 at the time, it was very quick to me that uh, what mid what being Midwestern meant, like from a personality standpoint. So when I got to Florida, and no one from Florida, at least in the late 80s, was from Florida. There's just right. transients everywhere, and the joke was the farther south in Florida you go, the more northern you get. So the Tampa-Orlando corridor was kind of like being in the Midwest, but certainly not the same. And I realized that I just that laid-back mentality is central to me, very unique to me, and I really missed that. I, I missed the being in St. Louis, obviously, and that's why the first opportunity, which was college, away I go to the University of Missouri. So I tend to, when I when I lost the high school question, I rallied pretty quickly by, uh, yeah, but I went to Mizzou. So uh, <laughs> that, that, that generally helped out in those conversations. Well, you, you said that your Midwest background made you laid back. I, I would have trouble believing that a salesperson brand builder is laid back. Uh, but how hard is it to build a brand? Uh, that's what you built your career on doing. So, but how hard is it to do? It's incredibly hard, especially if you are impatient. Um, I mean, there are, or, or if you believe that you have all the answers yourself. And, and I look at being a brand builder, and you're right. And I said it earlier, it's, it's catnip to me. I mean, that was the draw of this. The cherry on top was I was going to be able to do this in my hometown. But any kind of build, and even, you know, Rawlings, where I worked for almost five years, we were building, at the time, the football helmet business. And we were looking at new ways to reimagine uh, and to amplify participation in the sport, not just in the United States, but globally. I go to minor league baseball, and they they were building the first centralized sales and marketing office. So So having my fingerprints on that build, and then seeing it deployed in 160 markets nationwide, that, that was, that's the fun for me. And then, you know, an executive recruiter came calling about the XFL and specifically the Battlehawks and, you know, all of the ideas come, come flooding through my head. And, and while we didn't have a whole lot of time, it's not like we have the runway that the new soccer team does we still had to be patient and go step by step. And I mentioned before, when I built the business strategy, it was really for 2021. The foundational elements we were building for 2020, but I don't think the St. Louis community would have seen the full power. They never saw the full power of the Battlehawks. That is unquestioned. We were not remotely close to our potential uh, just because there are so many things that we need a full off season and some metrics that told us what was working, what wasn't from our inaugural year to get off the ground. And so being someone who's really rooted in research, planning, strategy development, you know, that allowed us to create this initial go-to-market strategy and these active activation strategies that bring people together, that bring this Battlehawks brand to life. And so I, I had to be, I had to tap into that patience. Um, knowing that even when that first sellout crowd and we saw the 29,000 plus jam the lower bowl, I knew at that point we were opening up the top for the LA game. And then in my mind, so I want to talk to you. I year, want to talk to you about opening up the top a little bit because uh, yeah. I actually thought you shouldn't open the top. I thought that it was, you had a value you, supply and demand and you had more demand than you had supply just opening the lower. And I didn't think you were going to sell out the top the top of the stadium and you'd have 
expenses for opening up the top, and uh, anybody could get a ticket at that point. So I, I was, you know, one of the things that we all talked about when I was with the Rams was, you know, leaving L.A. when they left L.A., we said, you know, we should build a small stadium in L.A. and charge a lot of money for it uh, because L.A., you know, Mm -hmm. it's exclusivity. And so I was pushing back a little bit on opening the bowl and expanding supply uh, before the demand was there or before all the demand was there. What what do you say about that? Tell me I was wrong. I agree with you. No, I agree with you to a point. I agree with you that to start this team, there was absolutely no way we were going to open the top. And even if the success, even if we sold out game one, game two is six days later. So there's not enough time, and you know it, uh, to get everything ready upstairs. Game three, you absolutely, I had almost three full weeks. We had two road games, uh, five and six planned. So getting ready from game seven, home game three, we would have had three weeks to prepare. Because of the ticket, robust ticket sales for games one and two, we were able to work with uh, the Dome and be like, I think we're going to go. Let, let's, let's put the contingency plan that we kind of tabled. Let's start working on this for game three. I don't know about the final two home games because you're kind of – at the whim of this of the standings where we are in the standings plus home game four was going to be an 11 a.m kick because we did not run we it was the same day as the cardinals first sunday home game of the season and even though it was tampa bay who evidently st louis hates with as much venom as they didn't like the rams leaving for los angeles um we were still i mean 11 a.m kick is not uh desirable and then we did not know up until the day we actually shuttered the season or the day we suspended the season we didn't know what time we were playing on easter which was our final home game it was either two o'clock or five o'clock and i pushed as hard as i possibly could on five just so st louis could finish all their easter festivities and then come to the dome for what would could have been a division championship game uh, versus dc but we were going to at least get one game in to see what, how expensive it was. Because you're right, there's a total. There's expenses about opening up the top. There's security staff. There's logistical, operational concessions. You name it. About going upstairs, and we really couldn't go all the way around anyway because of the way Fox and ABC deployed their camera systems. So the pulleys blocked. Oh, probably a fifth of the upper deck. So essentially a little bit past the press box from side to side. So no matter what, it wasn't going to be a complete, uh, we weren't going to completely encircle the top. But it all went well and the demand was there. And you are right on the pricing. But again, we aren't the elite league. We were wanting to get fans who never went to a Rams game because they couldn't afford it but they really love football. There's more volume there than fans are willing to spend what we were charging for in between the the 20-yard line, so to speak. So that gave us, the, opening up the top gave us the opportunity to invite more fans who were, even though we only had, we had $20 tickets for lower bowl end zones, I mean, those were snapped up in a nanosecond. It gave them the same opportunity to at the same price to go upstairs, to be a part of that crowd, to be a part of the energy, to be a part of that tailgating experience and really, really hammer home to a national audience what kind of football town St. Louis is. And then the belief was year two, we're opening at the top all season long. So we we talk about St. Louis. I want to go back a little bit and uh, not asking you to disclose all of your great ideas for going forward because they could be valuable that you could use those in your consulting (laughs) business coming up. Uh, But what what didn't you get to do that you really wanted to do going forward for year two, three, and four? While you're thinking about that, I'd say one of the things that I say about St. Louis is we are almost our worst enemy. Uh, 
because we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of negative sometimes, and we sort of talk about, uh, you know, we're, it's a baseball town, not a football town. The Dome is the worst stadium in the league, all those things uh, that sort of get a, uh, a narrative all of themselves. Well, ironically, I always viewed the Dome as being super positive about the game day experience because as we were talking to fans and especially as tickets started to go on sale in December and it's obviously a little bit more than chilly outside, I was guaranteeing 72 and sunny every game. (laughs) And I think that the mindset turned into, yeah, okay. When the Rams were there and it's gorgeous and it's 70 degrees and, you know, late September, October, and you're stuck inside, yeah, it stinks. But when you're starting a, 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 when you're playing in a league that's playing in February and March predominantly, and we know that in St. Louis, February and March can be brutal from a weather standpoint. Um, (laughs) Guaranteeing 72 and sunny was a major positive for us. The dome really was a huge benefit. Um, Now, Believe me, I was more than ecstatic on home game one on the on the 23rd of February that it was 50 degrees outside and people were tailgating their asses off. Uh, that was that started the day long goosebumps for me as I'm pulling up, getting off of 70 at Broadway and seeing you know billowing plumes of smoke from all the tailgate grills at 6:45, 7 a.m. in the morning. And we were kicking off at two. You now we were the late game that day. So yeah, it's um, the dome was nothing but a positive to us, and that really kind of fed into what our brand was. We were very positive, and so we looked at the dome, and people were like, ugh, you know, blah 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 blah. That's the reason why the Rams left. It's like, well, their loss is our game, and we always had the mentality. And I would say that. Without question, Matthew Dewey, Matthew Dewey, Kitty Ratcliffe, and their team were our greatest partners. They never said no to any idea that we had. And believe me, we threw the kitchen sink at them. And to answer the original question, we were set to launch uh, a great partnership with Square with Home Game 3. Uh, we were going to install what was going to be called either Square Square or Square Garden, depending on how trademark got through uh, on uh, on our idea, but a section of the concourse, we're going to have local square sellers creating Battlehawk-themed products that you couldn't buy anywhere else. And it really honed in on a community spirit that we're, we were celebrating, not just during our five home games. We used the five home games as a, as a megaphone, as a platform, but really to shine light on a lot of these great small businesses and obviously Square moving in to effectively right next door to the Dome, the old Post-Dispatch building. You know, there was a lot of synergies. And then long-term, what could Square do from a B2B standpoint to improve not just our operations, but the convention complex operations, whether it was physical point of sale or kiosk, and then all the technology that can bring to the table. This is going to be a robust, massive partnership. and. I worked with Square when I was in minor league baseball, carried over that same, hey, what, what, the sky's the limit. What do, you, what do you want to do? Met with Mr. McKelvey. I, it, that was something that, in addition to not seeing 50-plus thousand people go bananas at a, at a Battlehawks game, not activating the Square partnership, actually not even getting to announce it. We were going to announce it after the Tampa Bay game. Um, that, that sucks. I'm disappointed in that. We got a new soccer team coming here in a few years. Uh, what advice would you give them on how to kick it off? I mean, I think they're doing a great job starting off. I think they've, you know, really tapped into a lot of good things. But anything from your experience launching a new franchise in the city that you would say to them? Again, without giving away too many of your secrets. No, I, and I've been an open book to. Um, Carolyn and Dennis and others in the organization. And when they came, I invited them to our first game. And I, I told them in a point blank, like, I'm actually envious because this is kind of the climax of the build. And the build to me was so much fun. Those seven months in one week 
of July 1st staring at my laptop thinking, well, all right, where do I start? Because there's no guidebook. There's no one telling you how to do this. There's no like right way to do it. Again, there's no wrong way, but two, 29,000 people going bananas. Uh, it certainly helped that we score a touchdown four plays into the game. So they just amplified the noise that much more. But for the team, I mean, there are a lot of similarities and there's one major difference. We were able to tap into what we knew to be true, but the national media didn't. And that was St. Louis is a great football town. What the MLS team is, is doing, I mean, they're holding pocket aces because everybody knows what a great soccer town St. Louis is. So there's maybe more pressure on them than there was on us. Certainly also because we were technically a minor league football team and they are at the elite level of soccer in the United States but they still have an incredible starting point locally and nationally. And while I think everybody was, was disappointed that their initial kick was pushed back from 2022 to 2023, what that extra year does, it provides another 365 daily opportunities to engage their would-be consumers and their super fans and really roll all of St. Louis's soccer-loving families and youth organizations under one banner. And you said yourself, they're off to an absolute flying start. So the XFL has announced that they're going to come back, I guess, in 2022. Would you like to be part of that? There's a lot of unfinished business. Uh, that, that's for sure. You know, I, I There's also a pretty large file, I think, sitting in the – the data database that was transferred transferred over to the new owners um, that is has the business plan. Now, obviously, the pandemic's thrown a monkey wrench into the sports industry, so a lot of there would be some modification to it. But the same root is still there, and that is, we were building a sustainable brand, a year-round brand in, in St. Louis, and I'm I'm intrigued to see what the new ownership does, uh, what they want to do. They tend to not invest in things that don't succeed ultimately. So that's an excellent sign for um, anybody who's associated with the XFL. I have no idea what their plans are. I have not talked to anybody uh, associated with the new ownership or the, the league office since the 10th. So really don't have any insights to glean, but I certainly do not believe St. Louis did anything to disqualify itself from being one of the first calls uh, when they do start to plot out the 2022 season. I saw something on TV and they had uh, sort of a short blurb about the Rock and them taking over and the highlight was of St. Louis. And, and I think I said this mm -hmm. to you before we started, uh, I think you guys did as, uh, as good a job as any other team in the league. I think they have a resource there in St. Louis and they are silly uh, if they don't take advantage of what you, what you did and what you plan to do going forward. So, uh, so tell me uh, again. So if, what, what what's in your future? <laughs> I wish I knew for sure. Um, again, as much as I like to think I'm very patient, sitting on the sidelines for more than six months in my uh, unrequested early retirement has been really difficult for me and the family. And, and I know there are millions of others who unfortunately lost their jobs due to the pandemic, and they're looking for their next professional chapters as well. And it's it's tough. I mean, the market. It's, it's the job market slowly reemerging. Um, at the same time, it's still being flooded by great, talented executives. When you start seeing major league baseball teams cutting staff, um, I mean, of the 22 of us on the Battle Hawks, only a handful of us have landed. So I mean, there's there's a team ready to go um, should you know the XFL call or really any entity. And while I would obviously continue to love to stay in the industry, I've dedicated more than 20 years of my professional life to, and obviously to the home, my hometown love of more than 43 years, I really don't know where I go next. Uh, but I do hope wherever it is, it's soon. Well, I'm sure that you'll do well. So you're in kind of the same boat as a lot of people who are in the sports industry and love it because it's 
fun. It's glamorous. Uh, sometimes it's it's lucrative. It may not be as lucrative as it is for the players, but it is lucrative. Uh, what advice would you give to those people that are trying to break in the sports industry? I, I think the biggest one is always strive to to improve. Um, you know, always say yes to professional development. You can always learn something new and really to make it in this industry, and you know this to be true. I mean, you have to have not just a, a well-rounded skill set, but really the, the hands-on operational knowledge that'll separate you from your peers as you continue to grow into more advanced roles and responsibilities. You know, I grew up on the agency side of the business where you have to, by necessity, make pennies and nickels in your budget look like dollars. And that kind of fiscal responsibility merged with, you know, the strategic, like, how can you take numbers, how can you translate analytics into action has really been the, the background or, or the, the core of, of my career. And having a, um, a diverse skill set and working on all sides of sports business, I can see things. I have a perspective that I like to think is fairly unique. Uh, in the industry, and one that's also very applicable to other industries. You know, leading a professional sports team as its president is very transferable to leading a brand, leading a company, leading an agency uh, outside of sports. And that's really been the storytelling in the last six plus months for me. The the success that you you had with the Battle Hawks, I think, uh, was spectacular. I'm sure that there'll be a lot of great things uh, in your future, and I look forward to to, to following those. Uh, and again, I wanted to, I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, I think our listeners will really enjoy uh, listening to you, and I hope they. Uh, have enjoyed this conversation as well as our other podcasts. And if you do, uh, let us know. Uh, you can provide your feedback by going to the Apple Podcasts and going to the ratings and review section for our podcasts after the buzzer. If you're listening on Stitcher, go to stitcher.com. And if there's a topic you would like to hear us discuss, let us know that too. And Kurt, thank you, and we thank you for listening.